Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, Derek, Sandy, and the choir for using your gifts for encouragement and the upbuilding of each and every one of our hearts and lives. Uh, you'll forgive me if I'm just a little amused as uh, we begin our time together in the Word of God this morning. Uh, <laughs> as, I, as I was on the way up here, uh, my wife Rachel encouraged me to project. Um, <laughs> if you know me well, that's not really one of my struggles in life, um, <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll see. <laughs> We'll see where the Lord takes us. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 43. I would encourage you to take a Bible and join me there in Isaiah 43. Uh, As we look together at this passage, I think many of us will recognize this is actually one of the most popular or familiar passages in all of Isaiah's uh, prophecy. Uh, Here in Isaiah 43, we're going to be continuing our series entitled, Behold Your God recognizing that God is giving His covenant people in this middle section or this latter section of the book of Isaiah really a beautiful display of His own character and of His promised work for the eternal good of His people. So with that in mind, I would encourage you now to join me once again in Isaiah 43 as I read the first seven verses of this chapter. This is God's Word for you and for me. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning with a spirit of expectation. You have promised to work by your word and spirit for our good, for our benefit, to the end that we might be transformed and redeemed and saved for your glory. God, I pray that that work would take place even this morning as your spirit moves in our midst, moves in our minds, moves in our hearts to showcase the glories of the gospel and the good news that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, our minds, and our hearts to see, to know your truth, but more than that, to see and to know you. All this we pray now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Frank Herbert wrote his science fiction masterpiece, Dune, in 1965. Many of you may be familiar with this story because it was just adapted once again into a major motion picture last year. 
In the course of that story, and it is quite a story, we're introduced very early to something called the litany against fear. I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag this morning. We're, we're going to talk a lot about fear. If you look in this passage of Scripture twice, God tells his people that there is no reason for them to be afraid. But in that book, Dune, here's what Frank Herbert says about fear, or perhaps what his characters say about fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me, and when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. A book that's really meant to be about science fiction, that sentiment sounds deeply American. I will be enough. I will stand on my own two feet. I will dig deeper, and I will find the way. <laughs> that's not the gospel. Nor is that what we are called to as God's people. You see, here in Isaiah 43, God is speaking to a confused, weary, broken, and abandoned group of men and women. They are facing overwhelming, crippling circumstances, and God encourages them to find confidence, yes. But that confidence, it isn't the result of doubling down or doing better or looking inside. God encourages our confidence by reminding us of his own character and work. So this morning, as we talk about fear and hardship, and yes, suffering, we're also going to take a deep look at grace and God's presence and commitment to us in our eternal salvation. As we think about this text of Scripture, the, the outline is actually going to be so, sort of interesting or maybe a little different. Because as you look carefully at what God is saying in these seven verses, he, he actually outlines this passage something like this for us. I am going to be gracious to you, Israel, my covenant people, in your formation. I am going to show my grace to you in the midst of your tribulation. I'm going to be so incredibly gracious to you that I'm actually going to do the work of eternal salvation. But then God revisits this theme of tribulation again and closes verse 7 by revisiting the idea of our creation or, or formation. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take this path of looking at how God has been at work in our formation, our tribulation, ultimately our salvation, and then backtrack a little bit. Now, why would God do that? Why is he designing this passage in that way? Because he wants to highlight what he's doing right here. He wants to show us how committed he is, not just to bringing us into this world or bringing us through this world, but by redeeming us out of this world for his glory and for our good. As we start down this road together, let me say a few other things about this passage in general. 
Again, let's remember that this passage of Isaiah, that really this entire book of Isaiah, is dedicated to a people who are anticipating exile in the foreign land of Babylon. So God here is promising things to to these people that will follow their time in the discipline and exile of that place. But let's remember, let's be aware of the fact that God's promises here extend well beyond these people of Israel. They extend to all of God's people and in all the places of time and history. You'll also notice as we work our way through this passage that God sort of works in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. We won't really take a lot of time to look at those particulars, but let's at least remember together that God is committed to working all the time. There is never a time in which he is absent or idle in our lives. Finally, one of the things I want us to understand is that in chapter 42, beyond the section that Steve preached on last week, the people of God are described as deaf and blind and poor and under the fire of God's discipline. And all of that, according to Isaiah 42, is actually their own doing. They have landed themselves in that place through rebellion and disobedience. But God is now promising to do something marvelous and wonderful in spite of who they are. Something independent of their behaviors for their lasting good. First, let's look at God's grace in our formation for the first time. First, we see that God has created his people. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. We might glance over that or or read past that phrase or that idea very quickly, but really let's understand what God is saying here. What two names does he use for his covenant people? Jacob and Israel. That's actually the same person who served as the the ultimate patriarch of the 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes that would ultimately multiply into an entire nation. But how are those two names distinct or different? Well, Jacob was the name given to him by his parents because, and he lived up to it, he was a heel-grabbing, cheat and liar of a man, full of fear and deceit and self-serving cowardice. Israel is the name given to Jacob by God, a name of promise, a name of blessing, a name of hope, a name of a future. Here's the point. God made us, and he knows exactly what we are like. He knows exactly what we have done And he knows what he has done for us and who he has made us by his grace. We see this as verse 1 continues. We are told that we must not fear. Why? Because God has redeemed us. He has purchased us to himself. Redemption, really, it is an essential part of our Christian formation and our Christian identity. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and as such, we are God's prized possession. Look at it there in verse 1. You 
are mine. This morning, we had the privilege of celebrating covenant baptism. One of the beauties of covenant baptism is that moment when Steve read out the Christian, the covenant names of these children. It is a recognition that in God's grace and in His providence, these children have been entrusted to these godly, wonderful families, but that these children have also been entrusted to us as a church community, that we have the privilege, whether as parents or as those who come alongside, of saying to these children in many ways, you belong to us. You are ours. And by name, we share together in the great promises that God has given. As we think about the fears that often assail us in this life, the first encouragement that we have here is really fear not. Why? Because God made you. Because God has formed not only you, but your family. You are known by God at an intimate personal level. He has knit you together, and He has redeemed you, purchased you back to Himself for your good. Second, we see here God's grace in our tribulation, beginning in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. In our tribulations, first we see that there's a, there's a reality to our tribulations, words matter. And even small words matter. Verse 2 does not begin if you pass through the waters. When. That word speaks to reality, not a possibility. We need to come to understand that trials and hardships, discouragements, debilitating difficulties are an unavoidable part of life in a fallen world. But second, we, we see that there's actually a variety of tribulations too. They all don't come to us in just one form. The reference to, to waters and rivers and then to the fire and the flames, that's a literary device called a merism. What does that mean? It means that we're not supposed to necessarily attach these things to specific biblical events. It means that we're actually meant to understand that no matter what the tribulations look like, no matter how many various trials we may experience, God is present in the midst of every single one of them. All the suffering, no matter the nature. Third, we, we learn a little bit here in this passage in a broader context about the origin of our tribulations? Where do they come from? Well, first, we suffer trials and tribulations and difficulties and the discipline of God because of our own sin. Sometimes the difficulties of life are actually loving consequences that the Heavenly Father applies to our lives for our good. But that's, there's more than that here. We also recognize that, especially subsequent generations in Babylon, they, they would suffer tribulations. Why? Because of the sinful, rebellious activity of others. That's true in our lives as well. 
Many times we suffer tribulations, we suffer hardships, we suffer difficulty, we suffer disappointment. Why? Because other people have sinned against us and ultimately against God. Thirdly, though, tribulations come to us in this life many times just as a general result of the fall. Through the fault of no one in particular, we know hardship and suffering. Difficulty and doubt, confusion and calamity. In the reality of our tribulations, in the variety of our tribulations, no matter what has actually caused our tribulations, how do we typically respond to those things? Well, I think as we look at the truth of Isaiah 43, as we think about the reality of God's presence, the reality of God's ultimate eternal protection, we see that we can actually respond to our tribulations in two very unhealthy ways. One, we can look at a particular hardship, a particular kind of suffering, and we can try to downplay it. Imagine it away. We can try to dismiss it as something that actually isn't that important or really that heavy. That's inappropriate, and it's actually not what the Bible encourages. God speaks again to the reality of hardship here. But there's a second pitfall for us here as well. When we respond to tribulations in an unhealthy, unbiblical way, not only can we try to maybe downplay or ignore the reality of a tribulation, but we can think we're alone in our hardships. That we have actually been left to fend for ourselves. God responds to our tribulations in a very different way. He acknowledges the reality of hardship. And what does he do? He promises two things. First, he says, I will be with you. He promises his presence. God isn't going anywhere. He is not leaving us alone. He's not leaving us to our own devices, to our own wisdom, or to our own strength. And secondly, God promises his protection. Look again. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. As we look at the trials of this life, as we think about the difficulties that we face, the reality is that God is committed to our eternal good. And even if we find ourselves physically, financially, mentally, emotionally, to come to the very end of ourselves, even if in this life we die in exile or in the desert on the way home, we know the good promises of God, that His plan for us is something greater, something more eternal, and something that will result in eternal blessing. As we think about the promises in this passage of Scripture, particularly in verse 2, I want us to call to mind two different stories from the Bible. First, do you remember when the Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace? What happened? Well, this furnace, which was actually specifically developed for the death, for the destruction of those who were faithful to any god other than the king, 
the Hebrew children were thrown in. And yet, the people observing this event, what did they see? Who did they see? There was a fourth person in the fire. And even pagan peoples recognized that this individual looked like the Son of God. What is God doing in that particular event? He is saying, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your tribulation, I am present with you and I am working for your preservation. Think about Mark chapter 4 and the great storm that arose on the Sea of Galilee. Seasoned fishermen are convinced that they will die in the midst of the waves and the waters. Where is Jesus? He's in the boat with them. He's actually asleep in the boat with them. And he rises and says just a few words, peace be still, and the waters turn to glass and the winds disappear. Again, a reminder, a beautiful picture that God is present with us and at work in every single trial and tribulation. But let's make this a little more personal this morning. As we think about these realities, um, what? One of the most sacred privileges that I have as a pastor, as an elder who comes alongside you, you you actually invite me into your suffering and into your hardship. Over the past 10 years, I have watched you hurt. I've watched you walk the roads of broken relationships. Of drug addiction. I've watched you face overwhelming and unexpected diagnoses. I've watched families in this church wrestle with the realities of infertility and miscarriage. And I've watched the people of this church bury their friends. I've watched children in this church bury their parents. And I've seen the parents in this church bury their children. Do you know what else I've seen? I've seen God's faithfulness to you in the midst of your suffering. I have watched God sustain you by His grace and mercy. In the unavoidable realities of hardship and suffering and pain 
and loss. You have shown me the presence and power and commitment and faithfulness of King Jesus. I don't want it to sound cliche, but God is there and He is at work even when we can't feel it or see it or even when we don't want to acknowledge it. Fear not. Because He is caring. And He is sustaining. And He is walking with us. So God, He's gracious in our formation. He's gracious, gracious in our tribulation. He, but He's gracious in our salvation. Remember, this is really the heart of the passage. This is where God is driving us as His people. First, we see the motivation for salvation. Why would God ever take a people who are disobedient and broken? I mean, you know you. (laughs) Why would... Why would God do this? Look at verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. We need to understand that in our Christian faith, we, we don't primarily relate to doctrines. We relate to a person. We relate to the living God who in ways that we cannot fully understand or explain has chosen to place His eternal love upon us as His people. And there's nothing we can do about it. So why does God God save us? Because He loves us. But there's really another motivation back up in verse 3. He's also committed to showing us grace and salvation because He's loyal to us. He gives us all of His names. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Those are names that God has used for Himself all the way back to Moses. God is saying, I'm the covenant maker, I'm the covenant keeper, All the promises that I've made, I will keep. All of the work that I've promised, I will do. We also see, though, here in our salvation (laughs) that there's a price. Yes, God loves us. Yes, God is loyal to us. Yes, God is promising to do something more than just create us, something more than just to be present with us. He is promising to fully redeem and to fully save us. How's he going to do that? We get this interesting language in verse 3 about giving Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in exchange for you. It continues in verse 4 as he says, I give men in return for you people in exchange for your life. We won't really take a lot of time here, but it's important for us to understand that compared to an Israel that is on the decline, 
Compared to an Israel that will be taken into exile in Babylon, compared to an Israel that will have nothing, nothing left on the other side of Babylon, Egypt, Cush, and Seba are rich, powerful nations. They're significant. They mean something. But God is saying here, I will give what is necessary I will give whatever is necessary for your salvation. I will pay whatever it takes. All the riches in the world, all the power, all the glory for your good. As I've studied this passage, I am fully convinced that this is not really a reference to God's work in the Exodus in the past. Nor is it a a promise that God is giving to do something through Cyrus in the future. This is a foreshadowing of what God would pay for our salvation. When does God actually do this work? When does He give a man in exchange for our life? In the person of Jesus So even here in Isaiah 43, we're getting a touch or a taste of what God is committing himself to. Even if he must give up the life of his only, dear, beloved, perfect son, he will do it. Why? Because he loves us, because he is loyal to us, and because he wants us. And because he is not willing for us to stay where we are. Fear not. Why? Because God will do what is necessary to secure our salvation, even if it requires the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus. As we continue here, let's let's quickly revisit these themes of tribulation and formation. We see God's grace again in, in our tribulation as we see the reality of God's grace. It's interesting as you look really at, at verse 5. Because in verse 2, God said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. In verse 5, there's a small but significant change. Fear not, for I am with you. There's a reality, there's a presence to God's grace. There's also a beautiful longevity to God's grace. (laughs) I will bring your offspring. God's commitment is is not simply to an individual or a generation. God's commitment endures as long as time itself goes on and throughout eternity. God is saying that he will be present with all of his peoples in all places, in all time, in all of history. We get even more about God's grace and tribulation as we think about the extent of his grace Remember, his people are scattered or will be scattered literally to the four corners of the earth, but God says that he is going to gather them in again. From the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. We think, wow, this is a beautiful post-exilic promise that the people will once again be settled on the land, but once again, let your mind go further to the promise that God will gather who? All of his people from all tribes and tongues and languages and nations, from every corner of the earth, 
to his heavenly Jerusalem. Not one will be lost. As we think about this idea of tribulation, as we think about what God is committing himself to, yes, in our creation, in our hardships, ultimately in our final salvation, my mind kept racing back. I've used this illustration before, but to the horse and his boy. I don't know if any of you have ever read that or many of you have ever read that. It's not necessarily the most popular of the Chronicles of Narnia, but just listen as I read a portion of this story and think about your life. Think about your suffering. Think about your tribulations. Think about your wants, your fears, your needs. Think about God's presence and God's grace. We're going to pick it up. As the main character, Shasta, is living in the middle of a life of sorrow and suffering and disorientation. And here in this passage, he's just pouring his heart out to this strange, powerful entity that he knows only as the voice. Listen to this. Shasta told the voice how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. Then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all the dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one lion. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. We may not see him, we may not feel him, we may not experience him in some meaningful way, but God is committed to being gracious to us. He is right here, right now, in the midst of our trials, working for our salvation. Fear not. God will bring you safely home. Quickly, let's just revisit this idea of formation once again. God says near the end of this passage that we are who? Well, earlier he talked about your offspring. But what does he say about us near the end of verse 6? My sons and my daughters. Everyone called by 
my name. (laughs) We belong to God. We are members by grace through faith in Jesus Christ of his family. That is why we with great confidence can begin our prayers even as Greg began his earlier. Heavenly Father. You see, God is responsible not simply for our physical formation, but for our spiritual formation. God gives us everlasting kingdom value. And it applies to all peoples. How do I know that? Because God makes a point of saying, my sons and my daughters. Men and women. Boys and girls. The elderly. The young. The culturally successful and the salt of the earth. All those who are called by his name are his children. Fear not. You belong to God. (laughs) Full stop. You are His. His name is upon you. He has created you. He has committed to you. And He has redeemed you at the cost of His own Son. So where really does this passage leave us? It leaves us striving for, straining toward, confidence in the Lord. We need not fear. Why? Not because you are enough, but because He is. Not because you are in control of your circumstances, but because He is. Confidence is the result of God's grace. He made you. He preserves you. He is present with you. He saves you. And know beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning that He is far more committed to your eternal good than you ever could be. He will lead you safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at this passage of Scripture, we consider these promises, and in reality, some of this we, we don't like to hear. We don't like to think about the realities of tribulations and hardships and sufferings. Lord, some of this is too good to hear. Maybe it seems too good to be true that you will be with us, that you will bless us, that you will be committed to us, that you will do us good when we can't see it and when we don't feel it. But God, all of this we need to hear. We need your truth. We need your presence. We need your power. And God, thank you that you have supplied the greatest need of salvation to us in and through Jesus. We pray these things now in His name. Amen.